Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted. I'm your host, Ben Lieber. I hope you guys all had a wonderful, wonderful week. I'm going to be a little bit more long-winded in this introduction because I think it's worthy and there needs to be some context and background to the guest that I have on this week. His name is Greg Daniel. Now, a lot of you probably have no idea and you're thinking, who the hell is Greg Daniel? He's not a sports figure. He's not somebody that we see in the news in any other capacity. Well, Greg Daniel runs a company called Human Resource Tactics. You can find them at hrtactics.com. I ran into Greg at the NFL Combine. We struck up a conversation. I thought it was super interesting. It was very educational. And I asked him, you know, later on in, in future conversations, if he'd ever want to come on this podcast. And I got to admit, he was very reluctant. Um, he did not want to come on. He didn't think it was necessary to come on. And he was a little apprehensive because they are sort of secretive about what they do. And so I'm thankful that Greg was able to sit down and give us an insight on what they do. But Human Resource Tactics, they are employed by the who's who across the board in the nation when it comes to finding elite talent for your workforce. And I'm talking Army Special Forces, Navy SEALs, every tip of the spear of the military, along with the NFL, the NHL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and Fortune 500, 500 and Fortune 100 companies. They all employ HR tactics to come in and help assess, select, and development highly trained workers. And so I ran into him at the NFL Combine. They, they were there working with several teams, and they go in to all these meetings to help build character assessments and to not necessarily they don't look at height weight speed they're not looking at all the physical things they're breaking down the psychology of these players and trying to find hey these guys fit the mold for highly trained people based on historical perspective they have their own proprietary uh question system assessment system and you're going to find out kind of behind the scenes of what a lot of companies pay a lot of money <laughs> to HR tactics to come in and find highly, tra highly trained individuals to do highly trained jobs. So I hope you guys find it as enlightening and fascinating as, and as interesting as I did. So here he is, Greg Daniel on Unrestricted. Oh, man, what's happening, Greg? Good to see you, bud. Hey, Ben. Um, just enjoying summer, man. How about you? Uh, I'm I'm enjoying summer as well. Um, yeah, you and I live in the same part of town, so it's. Um, I know what life is like where we live, but summer is going well for you? Yeah, absolutely. I got uh, all three of my kids home, which is fun, and my youngest getting ready to go off to be a freshman in college, and it's just a family thing. It's the it's the point that I dread. I dread that moment when I'm like, oh, my daughter, she's going to be a freshman in high school. Please, please don't go through another four years and then be out of the house. It's like I could not wait for her to grow up and have you know more in-depth conversations and just see her become like this independent gal. And what is she going to get into? And all of a sudden now I'm like, oh, shit, the clock is ticking. <laughs> we only yeah. have four summers left with her. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to watch them flourish and see them becoming – what they want to be but also on the other hand you have all that emotion you know and you think about when they're not there it's it can be tough so you got to find other ways 
I know. Well, at least you have others. So you've got the others. I, I, it's going to be a really, really sad day when my third kid is out of the house. Yeah, well, actually, that's our – so our other two kids are already in school. So come middle of August, no, they'll just be me and Beth. So Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to learn how to okay, do that so I'm, empty yeah. nester I had, thing. A, I had it backwards, yeah. Yeah. So you got the you you guys are the empty nesters this at yeah. the end of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't envy you. Well, I I used to think about it my wife and I joke about it uh at times just like, oh, it's going to be how much more free time we're going to have and you know, we're right in the middle of running kids around all over the place all the time. You yeah. know, having to hire help to drive people and all the carpooling and whatever. And it's like you yearn for those moments where you're like it's going to be so nice when it's just a couple animals in the house and we can do what we want. But it's also going to be really sad. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, another stage in life, right? You get to in- invent yourself all over again if you want to. Oh, look at you with such good perspective. Would you stop it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you caught me in a clear moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna let you explain what you do. The background is you and I. We met at the NFL Combine. Uh, both coming back. Sat down in the in the Delta Sky Club lounge and and we were just hanging out and we struck up a conversation and I was so enamored and fascinated by what you do and and you were there at the NFL Combine with some teams uh, doing what you guys do practicing what you guys practice and in your best summation what does HR Tactics do and how do they help professional sports in the NFL? Yeah, so the the elevator pitch is that we are psychometricians we. We started in the U.S. Army Special Operations community, and then we adapted what we created and learned there to professional sports. So psychometricians, basically, we build systems, um, assessments, tools to measure non-physical attributes of people that then are used to build formulas that help predict their performance and behaviors in specific settings, to speak generically. So, for instance, in the special operations community, it was um, building assessments where they would take applicants for these elite units and run them through an assessment selection process, and we built tools that helped them measure certain of these, say, non-physical attributes, Um, that help predict their performance in the special mission units. And what we built, which was from the ground up, was substantially more predictive than what was publicly available that they had been using previously. So um, we then took what we learned there, and just by happenstance, um, some people in the NFL had heard about what we did, some scouts, and said, hey, we heard about what you guys do for the Special Operations Command. Is there any way you guys could help us identify players that have certain characteristics that we're looking for? And because they had been using some publicly available, mm-hmm. off-the-shelf, if you would, um, personality or psychological assessments and had been not getting great results, So, which is actually a pretty common theme for the areas where we tend to be really effective. So you might have heard... Uh, about some of these types of assessments. They're broadly available. They're used in a lot of settings. There's a lot of data out there, but they're very, they're s- pretty general and they're not, they're not, they've shown to be, the data set shows they're not very predictive in these really narrow settings. So we spend time with subject matter experts getting to know the things that are valuable and important. And then we develop from the ground up these assessments 
um, that use a couple different methodologies to understand the player's past behavior and performance mm. in specific setting in, in sports and, you know, the soldier's uh, setting in uh, past behaviors and performances in settings that matter, and then and then watch the outcomes. So we measure the outcomes and we follow the actual outcomes and performances and then map them back to the things we measure to build essentially predictive tools that help predict performance. So when you look at the military background, it's surprising that they were for so long just using off the shelf sort of generic, you know, personality and, and psycho, would you call it psychometrics? Yeah, like psychometrics. Psychometrics for yep. so long. Where specifically, if you could, if we get in a little bit of the nitty gritty with the military side of it, where were they failing? Where were the, where were the big the big gaps in their assessments from the generic off the shelf stuff to what you guys do and what the military ultimately really needed to find value in. Yeah, I guess I'll make a couple of comments related to some of your uh, part of your question. So first of all, I would say there's different gradations or levels of um, a quality and thoroughness with respect to different assessment and selection processes, right? So um, me asking you questions generically about yourself is one way I get information, right? But I may not be trained in it. I may not ask you the same questions as the 500 other soldiers or players that I interview. It's very um, inconsistent, not really reliable. There's really not data that's driven by it. Mm -hmm. Um, You can improve that by, say, offering some sort of a written assessment. So I'm asking the same questions to all the potential candidates. Um, But for those generic assessments, um, they're measuring more general personality traits, and they're not really getting to helping you predict the outcomes you're looking for. Um, so if you apply that to the military setting, um, what was happening, they were administering this assessment, but nothing in the assessment data was predicting the types of outcomes. The Army's pretty good at this. They spend a lot of money trying to do this, but you might have some guy gets arrested, you know, off base and creates a problem and all the investment you made is uh, going down the tube and another guy who doesn't, but you can't tell from the generic assessment which would be which guy, right? Oh, Um, right. Or maybe a person who was falling down in the performance of the responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the next step would be to say, okay, this isn't really helping us predict. It's asking questions that sound good, and traits that we might be concerned about, uh, but it's really not the data. We can't find any correlation where the data we get from, the results we get from the assessment are helping us predict the outcome. Because what you really want to do is we want these outcomes, you know, whatever the performance you're trying to measure is, and we want tools and processes that help us find more candidates, right, a player or a soldier who get to those outcomes of interest, the positive ones, and and be able to identify those who are more likely to fall short or to have an outcome that were that that's a negative outcome, yeah, right? So yeah. you're trying to really take your process and narrow it down to tools and inputs that help you get better outcomes with a higher degree of probability, you know, a uh, higher percentage of the time. You know, you want to be more right more often, yeah. right? So those would be some ex- some gener- kind of generic examples of that. Yeah. Well, I, f- I find it looking at the, the sports world and just my locker room experience, I have to imagine that's that's extremely difficult, and obviously you guys have figured out um, how to do that. But you look at 
just take your example of you've got one guy that gets in trouble for doing something off base. You've got maybe another soldier who physically is every bit on the same level, but you know keeps his nose clean. Then you take all of that and say, okay, how are they going to perform in a high-pressure environment on the battlefield? Well, there's got to be ways, obviously, that, hey, some of these guys that go out and get in trouble, they're risk-takers. That's kind of a good attribute to have at times in the battlefield. You know, Is the guy that's on base doing, the, doing everything he's supposed to be doing, is he such a rule follower that he can't adapt to what happens in the chaos of, of what happens in the battlefield? To me, all of that sounds and, – and I assimilate it to the locker room – you know, there's always, uh, you know, there's the old adage, you can't have a, a locker room full of choir boys, right? I mean, we've heard that for time and time again. You kind of, you kind of need some guys that are a little off the wall, right? You need to find that balance in the locker room. All can be high performers, but which ones are necessary? Which ones are the ones going to flame out? Which ones ultimately are going to be a liability and cause some problems? That to me sounds like really, really confusing data. Yeah, so you hit on a couple of things that are really important and that our background and our ex- experience tells us are true, right? So one of the interesting things you mentioned was every one of these candidates, whether it's for the special operations, um, special mission units, or the NFL, or the NBA, or Major League Baseball, have a certain unique capability to even be considered for that potential position, right? So in football, Everyone who's considered a candidate for the NFL is is extremely uh, has performed at extremely high level at you know say college right, and for the most part they all have these pretty incredible physical gifts or they've achieved the you know um, these uh, skills and ability right to be able to perform in a really demanding kind of unique setting right mm-hmm. and similar soldiers right the soldiers who are candidates for these special operations units are already the best of the best, right? So you're saying, okay, I've got two players or two soldiers who fit all the criteria, right? This, you know, these guys are first-round talent quarterbacks, right? So then what? Why does Jamarcus Russell fail? Right. And why does Patrick Mahomes succeed, right? Guys were both picked in the first round, deemed to have first-round talent, What's the difference, right? So we talk about the whole person model or the whole athlete model, and it's really four quadrants that we break it into, and it's it's something we borrowed and adapted from the military. The military would call it the you know the whole man model or the whole person model. It's um, the first one is we call can do. Does the person have the physical skill and ability to do the job? Right mm-hmm. in the NFL, right? It's how fast are you? How strong are you? Have you shown to you know all these things? Right? We're measuring your forty. We're measuring your wingspan. We're putting you in an MRI machine. Right? Physical skill and ability to do the job. So that's can do. We don't measure any of that stuff. We specifically don't go into that realm. That's the realm of the scouts and the GMs. That's all and the all. physical stuff that you guys. Yep, doing. we don't touch it. Um, the other four quadrants, if you will, of the whole person or whole athlete model would be. Um, then you have can learn, right? So um, does the person have the requisite um, mental aptitude, mental quickness, and focus to be able to learn the things they need to learn to perform at the high level in their responsibilities, right? So um, 
those are things you don't really observe. You might observe some of it when you watch tape, just seeing maybe a quarterback who's able to see multiple reads and check down and stuff like that. There's clues that they might have or not have it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've sat in interviews with teams where they're interviewing, say, linebackers, your position, where you know they'll very rapid fire, give a picture and say, okay, what's your read? What's your key? What's your job here? What's this guy's job, right? And some of these guys are so adept and so genius, really, so smart about what's going on, you can tell this person is functioning at an extremely high mental level, right? Right. So there's different inputs that a team might have to determine whether someone has that aptitude. Well, we have some measures, we have some parts of our assessment that measure that. So you have your can do, which is the physical, your can learn, which is more the, you know, the common, the triad, I call it, of, of, of mental aptitude or kind of a sport IQ, a mental quickness and focus. Then the other two components are, I call it will do. So just because you can do it and you're smart yeah. enough. Are you motivated to do it? Exactly. We, we often call that the motivational core, right? And these are things where you may not observe them. You may get clues to them by talking to teammates, by talking to opponents, by interviewing the player. But um, once again, who's asking the questions? What questions are being asked? How accurate are the answers? How honest are the answers? Those types of things. Well, one area of our expertise, it's not just in, you know, the psychological aspect of things. It's in, we call it test creation. So how do you ask what type of question, in what way, in order right. to get an accurate, honest answer. And we might come at one attribute from 12 different angles, right? So we build things in our assessment that detect, for instance, we call it uh, faking good. So if I ask you a question, <laughs> are you a hard worker? You're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm the hardest worker, right? Right. It's, it's pretty easy to, you're going to, you know, pretty easy to understand what I'm trying to get at, right? But there's other ways I might ask that question. Um, that would be more effective in getting an honest answer. So, and things that go into that will do might be things like dedication, um, self-efficacy, which is a kind of a specialized type of self-confidence, you know, mm-hmm. um, and um, goals, you know, how, what are your future expectations for yourself? How high are they? How specific are they? Different ways of looking at that and asking that to get to answers that help us be a more get a more complete picture, you know, the, of that whole athlete, and um, I'm sure a lot of people have selected, let's just say, first round, second round picks, where everyone thought this guy's going to be a huge impact player, going to be a perennial all star, and they fail, and you right. scratch your head and go, well, why did that? Ha- how did that happen? And you've seen the converse, where some guy's a late round pick or an undrafted free agent, and they have an incredible career and they're great performers. Yeah, well, you know? yeah, Tom Brady is the quintessential number one example that everybody can say really at any at any level or any any sport we're not just talking nfl we're talking guys that in nba nhl major league baseball everybody kind of points to his story and where he came from and like what what did everybody where did everybody miss or not did they miss anything like what did he do to elevate himself and to push himself in this maniacal way to be the best there ever was yeah would you so we did a presentation to a group of front office people in the last like say month or so from different leagues there was NBA NFL some college it was really fun actually it was a more of an informal setting and um, one of the questions we asked them was give us an example of a couple of non-physical attributes that you think are important in a player right yeah 
So what if I ask you that question? Like you've, you've played in the NFL. You've seen guys that are physically strong fail and guys that you didn't think would be awesome. Mm-hmm. What, what type of attribute would you say is important or do you think would be one of those non-physical things? You go, wow, if I could tell if a guy had that, it would be really helpful. And I, I could tell you, you know, what his probabilities of success are or improve. I would say off the top of my head, looking at my own career and the guys around me, I would say if there was a way to measure internal motivation to all to continually improve. Okay. If there was a if there was a way that you could say, well, this guy's not he's not motivated by money or status or anything on the external, but we have this we have a good way to indicate that this person has a high drive, um, this unrelenting desire to reward themselves with improvement. Okay. So that's a great answer. And what I would say is there's probably, there's things that we measure. Oftentimes something you might think of as one thing might be a combination of factors, Mm -hmm. right? So people talk about grit or they might talk about mental toughness or they might talk about, let's talk about this internal motivation to improve, right? So there's a couple things that I think of when you say that. So um, one is I call it self, we call it self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Does that person take responsibility for their own actions and outcomes, right? So there might be some guys who will be in the weight room when it's on the schedule and the coach tells them, but who's the guy that's going to the weight room um, when no one's telling them to right. or when everyone else went home? You know, you hear stories about guys who stay and do extra reps, those types of things, right? Even when it's not required, right? So that's probably some combination of factors like dedication, right? Mm -hmm. Really, it's how hard are you willing to work to get the thing that you're trying to get to, right? Part of it's combine that with goals, right? What are your goals, right? Yeah. My dad used to say to me, if you want something bad enough, you'll figure out how to get it. It's pretty true, right? Yeah, that's really you true. You can say you want something, but what really matters to people, you can, you can, pretty, you can tell by the way they spend their time and money, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can tell me one thing, but if your actions don't tell me that that matters to you, I probably know the truth there. So are they dedicated? Are they willing to put the effort in? Are, what are their goals, right? And then we call it affective commitment. It's essentially love of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Would you still play this game if it wasn't glorious and giving you money and making you famous? Some people, the answer is no. Hey, this is a way for me to get my family out of poverty and change their lives. But if I couldn't get paid to do this, I'd have to find another way to do that. Right. Some people just love the game so much, hey, I'd play for free. Right. You even see guys in the leagues sometimes, they'll take a pay cut to be on a team they like. Right. There's yeah. something, I mean, clearly something other than money motivates some right. people, right? They talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, right? But if you ask a player that, like frontally, it's going to be tough for them to give you – they may not even know, right? If you took a spectrum and said, here's some things, let's say it, money, fame, taking care of my family, right? Those are more extrinsic factors, right? Sure. And then here's other things like um, being a part of a team, right, self-improvement, whatever those factors are that are more internal. If you said someone, tell me where you are in the spectrum, my guess is – Everyone's going to pick somewhere. Somewhere in the middle. Yeah, right. Somewhere within 20% of the middle, right? Somewhere in the 30 For to sure. 70 yeah. range, right? Yeah. But if you can ask them questions in a different way where it's not so obvious, you might get a more honest answer. You will, right? So, the so, things l- you- so, so let me go back on that. How do you figure out 
what's being coached for these guys. Because we all know, not just at the NFL Combine, you you guys do the NHL and all this other stuff. And when you're sitting down with these with these executives and these scouts doing these one-on-one interviews, you know every one of those guys are being coached on what to say. You know, it's like, hey, are, are you a hard worker? Yes. I mean, obviously, that's a generic question. But I, I just feel like it'd be really difficult to parse through the manufactured noise and the manufactured canned answers. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll say there's a couple ways that you can cut through the noise and get to the honest answers, right? The first one is the way that we assess players is not through a one-on-one interview. We have a written, it's really electronic assessment that has a visual spatial component that's nonverbal, right? You've heard about the Wonderlick going away, which I think is great that it's going away, right? You don't like it? No, I mean the Wonderlick is pretty well established. To <laughs> one, there's um, yeah. it's people who tend to have say a more stringent educational background will perform better. Yeah, like if you got taught math and word problems and grammar, you'll perform better, which yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're smarter. Our data shows that to be true, actually. Um, so what we do is we take away the word problems, take away the math, and we use the visual spatial cognitive measures that help us get to that. But yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of the Wonderlick going away. Um, but you think about, so first of all, our assessment is essentially a questionnaire. Um, we ask questions about their past behaviors and experiences, primarily in football settings, right? Cause what we want to do is we want to predict football outcomes and behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. So the, w- and the way you, the best prediction of a player, a, any person's performance or actions in a certain setting is their past performance or actions in a similar setting. Right. Right. So if you think about it, so from our standpoint, we administer this questionnaire, right, which is very, you know, kind of expertly designed to get this information. We ask all the same questions. There's no variation. Bias is eliminated for, for to all intents and purposes. So the other thing is you think about the interviewing, right, which is very accurate. So players are coached, right? Here's some questions you're going to be asked. They probably have ex-GMs who run through mock interviews. Oh, I've for seen sure. those. Yeah. Which I would too if I was an agent, right? Yeah. I want you to present your best self, right? So we talk about best self versus true self, right? So you may not be getting the true person. You're getting their best version of themselves, right? So the best process would have a couple of different components. One is an assessment like we have, right? And like I've said previously, there's better and worse. Mm-hmm. And, and ours is by far the best. It's, it's very narrowly specific, and it's been proven, it's statistically proven to predict outcomes. Um, the other thing is, how, is there's better and worse interviewing. And this is something actually that a lot of teams have been having us help them with more recently. Um, we call it behavioral interviewing. So it's a really, if you think about, say, a scout's job or you know anyone in the personnel department at a professional sports team, your job is to gather data that helps the team make a best decision it can. Right. Right. So the better the data you get, the better the decision. Right. So if you use a better assessment, better data, better decision. If you're better at interviewing better data, better decision, right? So what we've been working with um, some team scouts on are how do you ask the right questions in the right way? So so those questions tend to be multi-layered and they tend to be more questions like, give me an example of, tell me about a time that, right? And that gets, you're not asking, we we try to stay away from opinions and hypotheticals, right? You know, Hmm. do you think you're a hard worker? doesn't really get you any good No, because that's so subjective. But I, give yeah. me an example of a time that you set a goal and you achieved it, right? Mm-hmm. Listen to the answer, right? One, 
you'll tell by how specific they are if they actually did it or not, right? Right. But then what's the follow-up question, right? You might say, tell me of a goal you set that you didn't achieve in the last year, right? Oh, okay. Now he's telling you, I got to be honest. One, did I even set goals? Two, did I have some that I failed at then? Okay, what happened? Yeah. Right? What would you have done differently? Or what are you doing now to address that? You know, there's sort of, it's usually the second or third question in a behavioral interview style that gives you the best data. Yeah. So. Unrestricted is proud to partner with Jack's Cafe, an iconic Minneapolis steakhouse family owned since 1933. That's four generations of Minnesotans who have made their memories at Jack's Cafe. If you're looking for a date night, a family night, happy hour, a place to eat and drink before or after a game, or just a boozy weekend brunch, head on over to Jack's Cafe in Northeast Minneapolis. Need something more private? Well, Jack's has five private dining spaces for groups ranging from 25 people all the way to 250 people, and you have to see their new outdoor dining space. Rain or shine, it's the freshest new outdoor hangout spot. Just make sure to bring your appetite. This original steakhouse has all the essentials, steaks, chops, ribs, their famous prime rib. But if you're in the mood for fish and seafood, well, Jack's has you covered. Take your pick of fresh lobster right from the live lobster tank. And Jack's has a one-of-a-kind trout stream right in the backyard. Yep, you want fresh trout? You can hand select and net the trout that you want. I guarantee you've never tasted something more fresh. So make your way to Jack's Cafe and check them out at jackscafe.com. That's J-A-X-C-A-F-E.com. An original steakhouse serving steaks, not trends. Have you ever run into a, a case or situation, let's just say in the NFL, just because I've, I've seen these guys before, and I know that they kind of exist. They say they might sit down in some of these inter- interviews, and they, they might say, "F these interviews. I don't give a shit. I know I'm a good player. I'm already slotted in the first round. What's it going to matter?" And I could see them going in there and just completely bulldogging this interview because they don't want to be wasting their time doing it, and they may fail on on your assessment, and then go out there be a high round draft pick and be a, be an all pro. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a. a uh anonymized example of a moment like that that I was in. I was in a team room at the Combine, and they were interviewing a player. Mm-hmm. And um, the GM said to the player, tell me who's going to come with you up to our town when we pick you in the second round. And the player looked at me and said, Shh, if you think I'm going to be there in the second round, this interview's over. You know, because he's this guy is thinking I'm a first-round draft pick. Yeah. There's no yeah. way I'm being there. You know what? Confidence is is an important thing when it comes to performance and success, right? Especially in in, in almost any setting, right? Yeah. So they kind of said, well, "We're just kidding you," and everyone laughed and they went on with the interview. But but that attitude, right, is a little bit what you're saying. Like, you think I'm going to be around the second round? No way. You know, right. I'm this guy, right. not that guy, right? Well, you have to discern that, right? Is you might have to find other ways to ask questions to get to see what you're getting at, right? Yeah, and I would I would think that delusion there's a fine line between delusion and self-confidence yeah well usually the people who set high goals and are apt to achieve them have other elements that tell you that right Mm -hmm. you do have you may you may see players who have a high goal but they don't show that they have the dedication love of the game other things that might be typically seen as correlating with someone who's able to achieve goals, right? Right. In that case, um, they may be a little delusional, right? They don't have a good, that's where they lack self-awareness, right? That's another thing. 
I talk about it maybe more subjectively, mm-hmm. but I've noticed that people that have more self-awareness tend to be able to, it's like you said, you think about getting better, right? You said you want to find a player who's internally motivated to always improve. Yeah. Well, you have to be able to admit that you're not perfect or that you made a mistake if you're thinking about improving, right? right? So one thing that happens quite frequently in all the pro sports is you'll get players who might attribute their success to their superior physical skill and ability, Yeah. right? Which may be true. There's some guys out there who are better just because they're more physically gifted. Yeah, especially from high school to college. Genetic bless, blessing, yeah. you know? Um, well, when you get to the NFL, it's very unlikely that you're going to have that much superior, you know, kind of physical skill and ability, genetic makeup to be still better than everyone else without having something else to bring to the table, right? So for guys like that, we work on the development side too. So not only helping evaluate players relative to who you want to draft or take in free agency, but also once a player is on the team, how do we get them a smooth transition to the league or to the team mm-hmm. and getting them on the field of play or the ice or the court um, as quickly as possible, making maximizing their contribution to team success, right? Yeah. So we have a player development related services we do that have to deal with some of these types of things. And the development plans we put together for players are depending on the person, right? You might have a player who's really at the far high end of what we measure. Mm-hmm. That player is likely already self-regulated. They're pretty highly motivated. They may even be able to, you don't have to coach me. I'm going to learn the book. I'm going to teach everyone the book. I'm going to make sure, you know, they already have, they're, they're going to be successful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. However, a player like that, so the, the development for a player like that might be more, okay, how do we take this player and help transition them from being a great individual performer to being a team leader, to being a force multiplier? And by force multiplier, it's that player that we all probably played with or know who seems to make everyone else around them better, Yeah. right? So it might be something like for a player like that, you're not addressing a weakness, you're trying to leverage a strength, right? So, yeah. hey, let's give them small leadership opportunities, right? Whether it's in the community or on the team, where they can start to build those leadership skills and they become that team leader, right? Whereas another player, like the one we mentioned, where they're, hey, I'm, I'm better because I'm just physically more skilled than these people. Well, we might, the, for that particular player, the development might be more about changing the mindset, right? From, from that to saying, okay, we're going to work on tactical mastery as a goal that's going to make me better, right? right? So it's a mindset change, right? Or... There could be a number of other things. It just depends. It's really specific to the player. Yeah. What about what about the assessment of quiet players? I I myself was especially coming out uh, in in the league in college was, was quiet. Um, was not super assertive. Um, I played with a lot of great players that were all pros, and and you know, one one is just got inducted in the Vikings Ring of Honor, and he was a quiet guy. You know, was not. What you would think of as the alpha dog, but on the field was a mother effer, you know. Yeah. So in the in your assessments, do you see a lot of that too, where you just see some guys that are just they're quiet, they're kind of shy? Absolutely. Well, I'd say this: we don't we don't assess for whether someone is extroverted or introverted, and the reason is one, no one ever told us that they've seen that predict success in football, and two, the data that we gather has never shown us that either, hmm. right? So. Um, there are 
lots of different ways you can be a leader, right? We measure for leadership potential, and it's, we're quite predictive of players that become captains in the various pro leagues. And leadership is not just about how loud you are. As a matter of fact, it's not often about that, right? There's different styles. People have different personality types. But leaders tend to care about the success of their teammates. They tend to be willing to put the success of the team above their own success. That's not always easy to do. People are mostly, hey, how do I take care of me first? And mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of other attributes of leaders that don't have anything to do with how loud you are, right? I'm sure we all have heard of that person where it's like, oh, they don't talk that much, but when they do, everybody shuts up and listens because mm -hmm. they know it's important. You know, and I always talk about leadership by example, right? Are you doing the things that the team needs you to do to be successful? That's leadership, right? And in the military, they have different types of leadership. It depends on the role, you know? Sometimes the leader in the room is not going to be the highest ranking guy because it may be a non-commissioned officer who has a certain experience where even the highest ranking officers are going, I'm listening to this guy because he's been in the situation or he's got this experience. So yeah. um, the things that we measure, they aren't really how, how extroverted or introverted you are. Um, we, do, we have looked at something we call interpersonal style, but it's really the way you communicate. Um, some people might be really blunt and straightforward. Other people are very like um, trying to be friendly and they get along with people. Um, if, you're, if you are a good leader, you could have either of those styles. One guy is going to be willing to get in your face and say, do your fucking job mm -hmm. or this is going to not work. Another guy might be putting his arm around and I say, buddy, you got this, man. You, this is what you're made right. for, yeah. right? There's yeah. different styles. I don't know. You could tell me more than I, than I could tell you about leadership and the different styles of leadership. Well, I think it's an important note to make. Um, and I'm, I'm glad people are hearing it from you, the expert, and not, and not just me from you know, anecdotal observation in, in a locker room. Um, because there, I think there are a lot of look at the youth youth coaches, um, you know, amateur coaches, even at the collegiate level, um, people in these coaching leadership, um, places, they will look at their players and, and think that to be a leader, you have to be communicative. You have to be loud. You have to be assertive. You, I, I think that that's sort of a, a misnomer and a little bit of a stereotype that look around and keep your eyes and ears open for even the quiet players that, that tend the other players tend to go to maybe privately outside of the team meeting or who do you see in the locker room where they're kind of gathered around and they're offering advice or like you're saying put their arm around another player to kind of pump them up those are leaders you know like don't get don't get it twisted that you you see these you know NFL stars or some of these you know uh, professional stars and they they're all these kind of big bold personalities and think oh the the leader and the captain the person's going to wear the C on our, on our jersey has to be this boisterous big personality that's not the case at all like at least in my in my experience and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think that that needs to be told. Yeah, I think the person usually has to have some sort of uh, minimum performance level. Usually they tend to be for higher sure. performers. Yeah. But the personality types are all over the place. Yeah. 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 Obviously, you know, most of the people that are riding the bench are not going to be looked at as that's a team captain. You know, you have to be, you still have to meet some sort of minimum requirement of, of, uh, of performance. But also they might, I heard one um, executive tell me, that um, if you have the top guy and the bottom guy bought in, there's nowhere for anyone else to hide, right? 
True. Because think about Zach Parise that when he came. It's like, here's the highest played marquee player, but the hardest working guy. Like, if he's doing that, yeah. What? and I'm not quite him, what do I – I better as hell be working my ass off. Same the other way, right? If the guy who's on the bottom may not get the playing time, may not be lauded, but he's working that hard, I got nowhere to hide. I better – you know what I mean? Yeah. So – there's different things you can do to play. There's roles, right? Yeah. And that's one thing really specific, too, that applies applied really specifically in the military and probably does in football, too. It's not who is the best player. It's who's the person who's the best person for the role, right? Yeah. I, was ta- um, I remember one team was telling me they lost a leader. I think he was an offensive lineman who was a big leader. And one of the things they specifically went out to go – find was someone who they thought could replace some of the leadership skill right it wasn't necessarily the football skill i mean obviously anyone who's been in the league probably has that skill they wanted someone who filled the leadership void that they needed on their line or whatever it was so yeah um that's smart when you talk about team chemistry and you have to look at you have to look at the whole team as this living breathing thing and if you miss an important part of especially the offensive line where those guys are tight I mean that's that might be the tightest group of guys, maybe defensive line, but I, in my experience, offensive linemen are super tight, and so to lose a key component of that, you got to fill that void with yeah, maybe a little less skill if you can't find a, an equal match, but you got to find the the person with the personality that can bring guys together. Mm-hmm. What yeah. about what about the role of and the assessment of of age? You know, because you look at the military. You're getting a lot of guys now. Maybe special forces. You've been you you've got these guys that have been enlisted for a couple years, but you're looking at you know sometimes 19, 20 year olds versus in some instances in the in the NFL you're looking at 23, 24 year olds. Like is is age a big factor in some of those assessments? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually one we get asked pretty frequently, especially um, when you compare the NFL to some of the other leagues. So. Um, in the NHL, I believe the players are dr- draft eligible the year in which they turn 18. So they're either so 17 wild. or 18 when they get drafted. Um, and it's uh, in Major League Baseball, you got a couple different entry points, but a lot of those top guys are high school kids, right? And um, it's a very reasonable question to say, okay, because we're known to be the gold standard in the NFL and have done this for a long time and have a lot of credibility and trust, right? But if you're talking to a an NHL team who doesn't know you, they go, yeah, football, I get it. But those guys are grown men coming out of college. They're 22, 23 years old. What about these kids? They're 17, 18. It's a great question. I'd ask the, I did ask the same question when I was getting to know um, the company. The answer is um, that the things that we measure tend to be what we call traits as opposed to states. Hmm. So states tend to be a little bit volatile, but traits tend to be very stable over time without active intervention. And we don't just say that. We actually have data that shows that. So one thing I, I'll reiterate, if I haven't said before, I'll say, um, you won't hear us say, we think, our opinion is, we feel. That's just not how we are. We're very data-driven. We say things like the evidence suggests or the data shows, mm-hmm. right? So in answering this question, we have a couple different data sets that tell us that the things we measure are stable over time. One is in the military where um, – there are some tests that are administered to high school kids when they're applying for ROTC scholarships, right? And then again, they basically take the same test when they're coming out of college for placement in the military. 
So you've got them at age 17, 18, and then you got them at age 22. Mm -hmm. um, and in that study, the things that we measure tend to be very stable over time. Hmm. Um, and the same is true in uh, football, for instance. So we work with a number of NCAA kind of power five football teams, and we'll typically um, we'll assess the players when they come into the team, which is primarily freshmen, some transfers. But then a decent percentage of those players on some of the more you know successful teams end up being candidates for the NFL. And so we see the 17, 18-year-old kid taking the assessment, and then we do it again when they're a you know, candidates for the NFL. And once again, in similar fashion, the traits of the traits and the outcomes tend to be very stable over time with you know, really no material differences. Really? So, That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. And it's something where um, there's some things that tend to be maybe a little bit more malleable with intervention, mm -hmm. you know, and some things like your innate intelligence and things like that probably aren't that changeable. Yeah. Know? So sticking on the age factor, because you guys have worked with corporations before mm -hmm. and, and still do. Now, you might be hiring people that are that already have some job experience out of college that are in their late 20s, maybe early 30s, especially if you're talking about executives, maybe even 40-year-olds. Um, does the data show that some of these, those assessments taken maybe at 18 can correlate and, and transfer all the way out into the later age? Or is there a point where, you know, there is a little bit of growth experience, you know, that maybe shifts some of those things, foundational things? Yeah, I would say for the corporate clients that we serve, it's more about hiring for the position, the role, the capability than it is about the age, right? So let's say you're hiring a clinic manager for a medical clinic, just as an yeah. example, you're more concerned about the skill set and the personality type, given all the responsibilities they're going to have than their particular age, right? You might find a 28-year-old who's extremely capable and a similar person that's twice as old that also capable or maybe not capable, right? It's more about um, you know, the, the attributes you're looking for. Um, and some of it, I mean, may be things that people acquire with experience. So there may be some elements related to experience that are also correlated to age. Um, but I think that would be more something that would be figured out through other elements of the process mm -hmm. or that might come out in the assessment. Like in the interview process, you probably want some questions related to, you know, experiences, right? Tell me about a time, right? You had an employee that X, right? Yeah, right. Right? Well, it doesn't really matter how old you are. It matters that you've had an experience. You can relate to what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, so anyways, I think it's less about age in those settings. Um, but one thing I will say is, um, so all of the corporate opportunities that we've had um, have come through referrals from professional sports teams. So it'll be a GM will send you a note and say, hey, could you talk to so-and-so? They're the brother of a coach, and they're the CEO of a fast-growing right, company. Right. And they had, they're asking us what we do because they've realized they have some issues mm -hmm. and the fact that people they're hiring aren't turning out the way they want. You know, Things like that will happen to us. Right, right. Um, but it, the design process is very similar, right? We go through who's the expert. Okay, tell me about the role. What makes for a good performer? Right. Tell me about the attributes of that person. Tell me about the, the how does that person behave? How do they handle these situations? Right. So they give us the information. Be like me, us talking to a GM or a scout about a football player. Right. Mm -hmm. What makes for a good linebacker? 
right? right? And they go through it, and you, you know, and then you try to develop questions that would help us get to past behaviors and experiences that would predict similar behaviors and experiences that are meaningful for that position, right? Um, and then you have to test, right? There's really, that's the thing about doing this in sports, there's really no shortcut. Um, you can't just dream it up and assume it's gonna work. You really have to go out and test hundreds or thousands of players and then mm -hmm. watch the outcomes and make adjustments. I mean, these yeah. things, so we have the benefit of 25 years of experience in pro sport you know, we have a pretty decent idea of things that work generally across sports and the way you have to develop specific things within sports related to, you know, more unique elements of that sport. But in the corporate setting, um, it would be a similar process. Talk to the subject matter experts, understand what's there, then build the questionnaire, the assessment, whatever it is to, to, to help evaluate these attributes. And then somehow you have to get data on who performs and who doesn't relative to what we measure. Right? Yeah, yeah. You can condense that. Like, if we went into a company and said, okay, here's, we're going to, based on the conversation, Ben's the expert in this area. We've spent a lot of time with him and his team. We think we understand the important attributes. We've got a good set of questions that we think we're going to ask to try to evaluate a person on these. Now, it would be helpful if you have a team of people who already performed that role that we could also assess mm. using this, right? And then you tell us which of these guys are better and worse performers, right? Oh, yeah. So here's our top 25. Here's our middle, you know. If you can do that, then we take what you already told us from performance, map it back to the assessment that they just took, and we can compress the process. Right, right. If we don't have that, then we have to start from scratch and build the data set. But yeah. there's different ways to do it. What about socioeconomic? Um, I've clearly been, you know, we always talk about in the football locker room, it is a true melting pot of our society. It is... It is basically a microcosm of everything that's going on and all, all the different diverse backgrounds from around the United States in a, let's just call it a 53-man roster, even though there's more with, some, with the practice squad players. But guys come from everywhere, from every different neighborhood, every different city. We have guys that grew up in very affluent neighborhoods with you know, very wealthy parents and guys that grew up with nothing. You know, yeah. Do, does that factor at all? It, uh, do you guys see any sort of correlation between whether it's motivation or just um, you know internally motivated or even externally motivated for some of you guys? Like you're saying earlier, some of them just like, hey, I got to support my family because they've supported me my whole life. You know, do I love the game? Sure, but it's a it's a means to an end. It's yeah. it's, it's a means to to help my family out and kind of repay them, which yeah. isn't always so bad either. No, I, I would agree with that statement. I mean, but. Thinking about the, the way you asked the question on this, the kind of different backgrounds of people, right? Um, not just the players, but the people that are evaluating the players have different backgrounds too, right? And wherever your experience is, you're going to have some specific biases based on your experience, mm -hmm. your upbringing, the things you've noticed, right? So I would say this. Every person has built-in biases, right? You're not going to eliminate those. I think you need to develop an awareness, right? Honesty about your biases and then think about, okay, how do I make sure these don't negatively impact the decision-making process? So that's one great thing about the way we do things. Um, our assessment, because of our background and the way we do it, is designed without bias. And if you think about even just the cognitive portion, the sport IQ, the Wonderlick is is biased by socioeconomic background. If you have come from a, a better education, uh, a 
background, we have more education, you know, you're going to score better on the Wonderlic. That's a bias. It really shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, our assess, our cognitive assessments are visual spatial. They're not words or math. And so it's really just measuring some of this raw um, aptitude. And as a matter of fact, the data shows that on our assessment, the African-American players score slightly higher overall than the Caucasian players. Hmm. It's neither here nor there, but you, we certainly wouldn't be accused of being biased against any particular group, right? And with respect to social background, um, we don't, we haven't seen any of that make a predictive difference, right? There's players in the NFL that have been really successful that come from pretty basic backgrounds, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a guy like Javon Kinlaw or Najee Harris, right? Those guys, I think, spent some time homeless, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're you might correct. have to yeah, fact check me on yeah. that and have become successful, right? And there's other people from, you know, wealthy families and, you know, and, and that have also become successful, right? And there's versions of those players that have been unsuccessful. So really, it hasn't shown to be predictive of outcomes. With respect to culture, maybe that's a different area, right? Mm. Um, and how you build a team chemistry. Um, one thing that's probably that works really well in pro sports, and it's certainly true in the military, is there's a, usually a very common mission, right, and a goal, right? And the, the, the people in that room on that team are really tied together by the shared goal. And I've often heard players mm-hmm. talk about, I'm really doing this for the guy sitting next to me, right? Yeah. You develop right. such a close relationship with that person, you're – that's part of your motivation is being part of that team, right? And it's it's just this family and it's this brotherhood and it's going through and it happens in the military too. You go through highs and lows together, you take care of each other. Um, that that develops pretty strong bonds. That I think, you know, that common mission with that shared experience and overcoming obstacles builds some pretty tight teams. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can some teams. And I'm just speaking as an observer now, not you know, but. To me, like I look at the Buffalo Bills these days, they just seem like they have a lot of fun and they're a really tight team, right? Right. Well, they've been pretty successful. And, well, success, you know, it makes things easier when it's successful, but sometimes having a team that has the right mix, chemistry, culture breeds that success too, right? Yeah. Do you have the right leadership in the right place? You know, it's it's um, it's a probably a tough thing to measure, right? But um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on teams you've been on that say had really good team chemistry and what you thought was important to that? You know, I think the teams that that if you can keep the guys around the locker room and around each other outside of the designated we have to be here times, those are the teams that I think are ultimately – it doesn't always mean that they're going to be successful, but I think that they truly care about each other, which you hope – translates onto the field and if you see you know your buddies putting the extra effort you're now going to sit there and and watch extra film you're going to get extra work in you're going to go do all these extra things because you feel compelled to that because your buddy's doing it um you know i was on a i think early on maybe my second or third year with the vikings we had an older team we had a lot of guys that had families we had a lot of guys that had young families that had kids and I didn't realize it at the time, but looking at it in hindsight, compared to the other teams I was on, maybe when I was in San Diego with 
a young team, we just didn't hang out as much, you know, because everybody just got done with work and they would just go right home because they, you know, they're going back to their families and they felt like they needed to be there as, as far as a dad and all this other stuff. But, you know, close teams, but then compared to some of the, the younger teams I've been on, we had a lot more fun because <laughs> we didn't have kids to run back yeah, to and yeah. have families to go take care of. And I'm not saying that we were any more. It was just maybe just a more enjoyable experience, which you hope that does bring better better team chemistry, better performance, uh, and ex- execution on the field. Yeah, well, I think it's human nature to do more and to sacrifice more for someone that you ha- that you that you have a more of a deeper relationship with. Yeah. Right. So if you just take that and apply it to a team setting, the, the people are more likely to go that extra mile to maybe sacrifice a little bit more if they feel like they have mm-hmm. a more personal, deeper relationship with that teammate. So it's interesting. Um, I was talking to an NBA team about this, an executive, and he was talking about how different it is because of the money. And when he played, they didn't have any money. And he said, we would go out together and try to find a way to get a meal, you know what I mean? And, and who would pay for it and all that. And nowadays, the money is so big, players will come in with their own set of friends already. I don't need to get to know my teammates. I'm bringing my whole Posse yeah, I've got my me. crew with me. I've got a chef. And I got all this stuff. Yeah. So, but I'm guessing the smart teams know how to still create those opportunities to build something beyond just what you do kind of during office hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I would I would say too now that I'm thinking about this, there was a difference in leadership from the top down as well. You know, w- when I was in San Diego, uh Marty Schottenheimer and his wife, and his wife did a really good job of having get-togethers and you know, kind of encouraging guys to hang out. And we would do little, little team activities that were outside of football but still involved the team. And you get to know each other. His wife did a great job with the wives group, which then all of a sudden now as, as we, I think, you know, if you're like me, my social life is basically run by my wife, you know. And, yeah. and you become friends with the – you develop tight relationships as an adult based on the – the boys and the girls getting together and getting along. You know, I have guy friends um, that maybe necessarily the girls just don't get along. And mm-hmm. so they're, therefore we just don't hang out as a, as a group as much. Uh, when I was with San, when I was with Minnesota, it didn't seem like we had that top down uh, care and attention of getting guys together, getting wives together, stuff like that. It was all a little bit more work. You had to take the extra step, to do that and um you know as the season goes along you're just tired and you don't want to take that extra step so um yeah it's an interesting question because i've never truly thought about it that deeply um i wanted to circle back about the the wonderlick and ask if you guys do this at hr tactics um through my wonderlick wonderlick experience i scored a 22 out of a 22 okay so it's not great not terrible but what somebody told me later on and this was not told to me right away that was a little bit of a red red flag for some teams and i asked why and they said because the way that we were told to assess that that score was that you really took the time to get every answer right and they this particular team was like we're not necessarily looking for you to get every question right we want to see your mental process and how quickly and how much things maybe just don't matter like It'd be one thing if I answered 40 of those questions and I answered 
you know, 34, 35, 36, 37, but then left a chunk in the middle, it shows them like, if I didn't know it, I just went to the next one. So they said, we have a feeling that you probably process too much. And therefore, you're going to always have to work through paralysis by analysis. And I was like, well, motherfucker, that would have been great to know, you know, five years ago. Because guess what? That's some of my biggest problems on the field. I would think too much, you know, and it would hold me back from performance rather than just shoot your gun and go, go with your first instinct. You've done the prep. You know what you're doing. Have confidence in your preparation. And if you see it, go do it and just go. I wish that was told to me. You know, so is that yeah. part, is that built in at all to your guys' assessments? Yeah, do the, do the, actually, are, the, are the players aware of what you guys, see, how you see them? Well, I'll just answer the first question and leave the player awareness one off the side for a second. So when you think about what's important, right, you think about whatever the position, you have the, you have the processing ability, like your, that's your CPU, right? Yeah. How smart. You know, like how accurate am I, right? But there's also something. So we measure that. I call that the sport IQ or the football mental ability. But then we also have something that's related that we call mental quickness, right? Yeah. That's a read-react measurement. So what that does is not only how accurate but how quickly, right? And you can sometimes see personality types coming out. And that's where it's not just about – There's a, I call it mosaic theory. So – I come from the capital markets investment community, and we talk about mosaic theory. Like if you're going to, say, try to invest in a stock, you're going to try to find all these little pieces of information, and you're going to put them together to form a picture of the whole so you can make a better decision. I think the best GMs and decision makers I've seen in pro sports take a similar model, right? So our information, what we measure is one part of the mosaic or a puzzle, right? So but when you look at that, Talk about mental quickness, mental aptitude, sport IQ. Um, it's exactly that. Not only are you accurate, but how quickly are you accurate, yeah. right? So you hear about quarterbacks, they say, oh, you never get to the second read, right? Well, maybe he was he slow, right? Um, or um, what sometimes happens, we've seen where a player will be v- very high on the sport IQ, the football mental ability, and say lower on the, the quickness. Hmm. Sometimes... We talk to the team. We say, can you tell us a little bit about this person's personality? Because sometimes what happens is if you're a perfectionist, they're wanting to make sure everything is right as opposed to doing it quickly. Yeah. Right? And um, so there's an element of both, right? But um, they do matter. Both matter, right? Because you can be as smart as it comes, um, but if you're not able to process quickly, it's probably not going to work, right? Yeah. Um, But one thing we used to say, and it's the same in the military, smart enough is good enough. Right. So there's usually some sort of a baseline level of football mental ability. That's what we call it or sport IQ that's required to perform effectively at the position. But being remarkably higher than that doesn't make you any better. It's basically a cutoff type statistic. The numbers show, the data shows that below that number at this position, the person's unlikely to be very successful. Or the data shows at or above that number, the person's, they know there's, they're smart enough and quick enough to be successful. It's not that if you're a, it's not exponentially better if you're higher. Sometimes, like you said, if they're too high, they might be an overthinker, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people that are really smart tend to overanalyze things, right? I mean, you got to give yourself a break because, I mean, of course, you're, you know, you're saying, how could I be better? But, um, 
like uh, when you look at the performance that Ben Lieber had, um, you know, we do this analysis. So what we do is we evaluate what you really want to know when you're taking a player in any league is how how is their how is their actual performance differ relative to the expected performance, right? Right. Because right. what you're worried about is an early on draft pick that underperforms or a late, you want to avoid those, right? Mm -hmm. That's a costly mistake, mm -hmm. right? And you want to find a later round draft pick per se that overperforms because the expectations are low, right? So when right. is the actual performance different than the expected, right? Yeah. If a high performer performs at a high level, that's what we hope for and expected. If they don't, that's a mistake. We want to avoid that. And at the low end, if we can find some of those guys that don't cost us a lot and no one was expecting much and they turn out to be really performers, wow, we got a diamond in the rough, right? High return on investment. So um, the, the data that we provide teams and the information we're able to get our assessment is very effective at helping identify um, the probabilities of when those actual outcomes are going to be different than expected. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's any any sort of return on investment, right? Buy yeah. buy low and hopefully you can sell really high, right? <laughs> yeah, if I mean, you pay a lot, hopefully you get your you know yeah, you which which I think sometimes is so unfair that the public uh, and even I am guilty of doing it in the current job that I have. You know, talking about sports, talking about players is tend to forget that these guys that are drafted in the first round, they, they look they're, they're gunning for that. That's their goal, but because they don't they don't perform at that expected level, not necessarily their fault. Like the team drafted them, they didn't they didn't right. they did not draft themselves. Right. The team spent whatever draft selection in the first round on this player. So fault the team for either misfiring on this guy, didn't didn't see some maybe some obvious issues. Um, yeah, there are there are times where you you can blame it on the player for not performing, especially if the guy goes out and you know doesn't take care of his personal life and gets in trouble with the law and all that other stuff. But even even still, even talking to you, sometimes that's a little bit predictable based on their personalities. I just think that hammering these guys for not performing at their expected level is not always their fault. <laughs> I mean, because if you have a first rounder that doesn't perform and you hammer them and hammer them and hammer, them, well, if he was drafted in the fourth round, would you? Would you be hammering this player? Right. No, you probably would. You'd be like, hey, well, he's a fourth-round draft pick, so that's what we expected. Yeah. I call that relative performance. How did you actually perform relative to the expectation? Yeah. Right? A, the same level of performance is different depending on where the person was drafted, right? Yeah. <laughs> if I perform like a second-round draft pick, is that good or bad? Well, well when were, were you, you actually picked, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you were a first-rounder, we might not be happy with that. If yeah. you were a seventh-rounder, we're – we're doing somersaults that we got such a great deal. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. You mentioned also um, off the field issues, so that's another area. It's the fourth quadrant. We never got to it. Actually, we deviated. So um, the fourth quadrant we call it um, will be. It's really about character and the types of things that go into that quadrant are leadership potential, um, social maturity, right? And by social maturity, really what we're talking about is. Um, the probabilities that a player might get arrested or suspended, right? So, which is really critical for teams to know. In light instances, a person might not be available for a game or games. In heavy instances, you have much more substantial. Uh, um, the damage caused by bad PR 
the fact that a player who was expected to be a, was paid a lot and was a, uh, expected to be a big component is not performing. There's so many negative consequences for things like that. That's another thing where um, we actually it's very important in the military. Also, you um, you want to find soldiers that are not going to get in substantial yeah. amounts of trouble. And and quite honestly, the settings are expecting these people to do some pretty violent things, mm-hmm. right? So in the military, you know, um, you know. People are getting shot, and people are, you know, it's war. And in football, it's a very violent sport. So to try, you know, like you said, it's not all choir boys out there, right? Right. Um, we right. want tough people that are going to show up and maybe be violent at a time when it's required, right? right. Um, but do they have the impulse control to not go there um, when they're at a bar and someone bumps them from behind or someone's acting even worse like a jackass or an asshole to you and you're a public figure, right? Yeah. Can you turn around even though you <laughs> want to punch a hole in the guy's face, right? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, sometimes that can be difficult for guys. You know, they, they some guys know how to turn the switch on and off and other guys, you know, you're asked to play a violent sport or do something violent and then all of a sudden – not be that person when somebody steps towards you, you know, in a public setting. I can see how that can be difficult sometimes for some guys. Yeah. And, um, it's all over the news. You know, it's interesting. I have a neighbor of mine who's a PR guy and I was talking about this because we're actually very effective at predicting when there's likely to be issues. Right. Um, and I said, how would you quantify something like that? Like bad PR? He said, well, think of it this way. Let's say, a player gets uh, pulled over, going the wrong way, 3 a.m. Um, on a highway, right? They, let's say they've been, they're either drunk, maybe there's weed in the car, maybe there's firearms in the car, right? Not a great situation. Okay, so it's a little story, right, where it gets picked up. It's a, I don't know, maybe it's a quarter page mm-hmm. or it's a blog post or something, right? And then um, ESPN comes along, right? And they say, oh, that's interesting. Let's put that up on our yeah. news, right? Yeah, so, main okay, page. Now it's a bigger story, right? And if you just said, what would it cost me to have that much airtime, you know, as an ad on one of those, either in the paper or on ESPN, well, you could put a dollar value on that. Yeah. And then let's say, oh, another reporter says, oh, that's interesting. Let's go look at the history of players and see if this has happened other times, right? Oh, and they find two or three other instances where a player from that team has done something like that that's considered, a, you know, it's generally negative, right? Bad. And then you say, oh, geez, it looks like this team doesn't really care about the behavior of the players as long as they can play the sport, football, basketball, whatever, right? Then they write an article. This team doesn't really care about citizenry and being a good person. They they could care less as long as you perform on the field, right? And by the time you're done, you're talking about millions of dollars in negative publicity. I'm guessing if you were to talk to a team owner, you know, about instances like that and how much of a headache it causes where there, these people have built these careers, built these reputations, all this integrity, and now you own a team where people are doing these things and you're being accused of not caring. That's got to hurt a lot, plus probably has some pretty, like, economic consequences to that. So there's a lot of value in being able to help identify the, the probabilities of those situations and hopefully reduce the probability of that happening or avoid them. Yeah. So let me ask you kind of two cleanup questions here as we um, kind of close this thing out. A, staying on that, have you? do you have an instance that you can share where you guys did predict a negative outcome for a player and you alerted teams, or at least it was in your assessment, and it was overlooked, and then ultimately you guys were right? 
And secondly, you know, especially for all the the younger listeners and the the younger people that that could hear this, this may just go back to the four the four quadrant thing. But is there a summation that you guys have found in your expertise of like this is what you guys should be doing for character development, performance development, things that you should look for in knowing that this is sort of where sports is going, where these assessment models are becoming more and more popular. How can you give some of these younger athletes and maybe even just as a whole, just younger people, hey, this is what the, this is what people are looking for. This is what the workforce is looking for. This is if you want to be a high end leader and you want to be a high performer in whatever job, then maybe start working on these things. Yeah, uh, for the first uh, for the first question, an example of a time where. Or, or do we have instances where we've pr- projected or our information showed that a player was, say, more likely to have arrest and suspension problems um, and that it got ignored? I'll say this. Um, we, we measure and predict for that, and there are plenty of instances where we've identified that as a high-risk situation um, where – some team has taken them, let's not say necessarily one of our clients, and it's turned out that the player got arrested or suspended, right? Um, we generally don't reveal names of things, but there is, I mean, one that we're, that I can reveal because it's in the public domain is Aaron Hernandez. Hmm. So Aaron Hernandez um, was actually, I think, a fourth-round draft pick. So um, in our assessment, um, we identified him as at the high end of what we would predict for performance. So he was basically a 10 out of a 10 on his HRT score, which would mean, based on what we learned about him through our assessment, we predicted he's going to be a high, high performer. Um, but the, the other factor you're talking about, what we call social maturity, he was actually as low as we get. And um, unbeknownst to us, somebody who had um, one of our, our report on Aaron Hernandez shared it with the Wall Street Journal, and it got published that you know, we had identified him as being on the edge of acceptable social behavior and likely to create problems for the team. So, you know, other people would tell you there was a general awareness there might be issues, so that's probably why he got drafted in the fourth round instead of higher up. Yeah. You know, so um, we identify those players. uh, I mean, we measure for it. It doesn't mean if you score low, you're going to get arrested and suspended, and it doesn't mean if you score high, you won't, but the data shows... Yeah, you are that phrase again, that the players who score on the low end of what we measure get arrested and suspended five times more than the players that score on the high end. Five times. Yeah. Well, it's just it's wild to me that you guys, through your assessment, red flag this guy for character assessment, um, character issues. And then he goes on not to just get arrested, but to be a murderer. I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> creepy to think about. Yeah, um, it's sad. Um, and we didn't necessarily predict that specific outcome. It just was based right. on the way, you know, like we said, we did obviously get an honest assessment of him um, from the way we do things. But there's examples of players who were considered high risk that turned out to be extremely high performers, a guy like Randy Moss, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Vikings didn't get him where he was, his talent would project that he would go. He dropped because people were concerned based on past behaviors and experiences that he may not, he may do some things that would keep him off the field. And, yeah. um, um, not that he didn't have his share of, um, you know, interesting incidents while he was playing, but he generally stayed out of trouble. Yeah. The guys in the yeah, hall he was fame. a little mouthy. Anybody some, else? Yeah. I think anyone who picked before, I think the Vikings got him 24th. Anyone who picked before would have gladly swapped their trade, oh, yeah. their pick for yeah. him. So there's an instance of a guy and I, I don't specifically, 
I'm not specifically speaking about him, but if he would have been someone who would have, you know, maybe based on past behavior and experience, looked to be a high prob- you know, higher probability of a risk, well, he turned out to be a tremendous value and a performer. Yeah. Um, your second question was more, I th- if I yeah, heard it correctly. Yeah, this is kind of about- like a summation of, you know, off of your guys' experience and expertise and things that you've seen, are there just some like general rules of thumb that maybe young people can take away and say, okay, if, if this is what it takes to be a high performer, I should start developing and working on that stuff right now. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I think there's probably a lot of different ways you could point people with respect to, Hey, what's a roadmap for me creating successful outcomes for myself? Um, are you familiar with John Wooden and the wooden pyramid? Yeah. Yeah, that would be one thing I'd say everybody should take a look at, right? I mean, there's a guy who won, you know, he was one of the most successful coaches of all time. And if you talk to people about him, he never talked about wins and losses and things, right? He was all about the, the person and the character and obviously knew what he was talking about with respect to coaching. So I would say check out the Wooden Pyramid. And and then, I mean, generally, um, you know, the types think about, you think about the types of characteristics that make for the people that you want on your team and you want them to be around. Give me a person who is dedicated and works hard, someone that sets high goals and will do whatever, you know, whatever it takes to achieve them, a person who's a good teammate, cares about others. You know, I mean, these are general attributes that we talk about for pro sports, but that probably are good for people in general. That's why a lot of times you see people who come from who played on teams become really successful in the real world. They learned a lot of lessons playing sports that are translatable to the real world. I don't know if that's a fair, I don't know if that's a exhaustive answer, but no, I, no, I think it's good. I think you, you, that's why I was like, well, I know you probably did already answer this in your, in your four quadrants of what you guys look for already. Um, so yeah, I mean, no, you, you answered it. It's just, I was looking for a little, you know, nice and nice and tight like oh these guys are you know these guys and gals are you know x y and z and that's pretty much you know high percentile if you you're this that and what you did yeah you, you I, answered I would it. add one more thing um i think that people that have you know carol dweck is someone who's wrote about what you've probably heard about growth mindset mm-hmm. it's essentially a person who believes that they can improve and get better right yeah fix versus growth right and i think about it a couple different ways like think about failure right I always see, I think it's, you know, you think about failure as a component of success, right? Because it teaches you things. And it also, if you're motivated, right, you're trying to uh, not make the same mistake twice. Right. Yeah. So I think in general, if you can have a personality where you're always saying to yourself, um, I'm going to work as hard as I can. And when I make mistakes, I'm going to learn from them and get, take, take a lesson and get better. I think if I was to say one thing, um, you know, that, that uh, willingness to, always you talked about it actually early on you want a teammate who's motivated to continually improve i mean i i like that i'm gonna you know i'll kind of piggyback off that one in my own little way and say i want that's the kind of people i want around me too right yeah yeah you don't think you have all the answers but you're willing to admit when you make a mistake and you're working really hard to get better right yeah yeah so yeah no i i um i obviously support that because i and I'm glad to hear you say that only because it's kind of just came off the top of my mind about how I try to uh, I try to approach everything. And I didn't always I did certainly didn't always have that. I just kind of watched other people. You know, I watched I was definitely more of an observer early on of just like, well, how does this guy do it? And how does this guy do it? And like what 
what's driving this guy? And like, well, you know, and then you start asking questions and you start to get to know them. And it's like, um, yeah, the guys that are really, that I respected, they really looked at themselves critically and pretty honestly, even though that they were to me at the top of their game and they were still just out there just grinding, you know, it's like, man, what do you, you know, like, I don't see how you're, I don't see any improvement you need to make, but they were just had a critical eye and say, like, no, I got to work on this. I got to work on this. I got to work on this. So like that unrelenting just desire to always get better like daily. And I'm not saying like, oh, it's a, it's a goal I have of mine in six months. Yeah. These guys were setting goals every day. Right. It's part of what they, they're, it's part of their fiber, their daily routine. Yeah. Well, there's also other people that were in the same rooms as you were that were observing the same people that didn't come to the same conclusion. Maybe, well, right? yeah, maybe, yeah. So, you know, yeah. so you have something in you that you that told you that was valuable and then yeah. motivated you to try to learn from that. I just didn't want to lose my job. Yeah, that, that's a good motivator. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I didn't want to lose. I, I, I knew how the, the NFL works, and I'm like, all right, they're going to draft some guy next year that's probably going to take my job. You know, that's, that's their goal is to always find better and cheaper, you know, so yeah. – I did it more so out of just being scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> that can be a good motivator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Greg, thanks, man. This was this was so uh, so enlightening. Um, it's fascinating that the work that you do, and and I love, I sort of love this clandestine, you know, uh, feel that you guys have. You kind of work in the shadows a little bit. You know, you, you work with a lot of these teams, but yet, you know, you can't really say who you work for and and all this other stuff. I I kind of I think. That part of your business is super cool to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I go both ways. The community we come out of is known for its quiet professionalism. Yeah. And that's the personality, the historical personality of our firm. But it's also true that um, if people don't know about you, you know, that probably doesn't change your situation. And, um, you know, we're looking to grow. Yeah. And so we've done a little more kind of specific kind of outreach trying to communicate to get to know and communicate with the types of people that would benefit from what we do it's primarily within pro sports mm -hmm. um, there's a little bit outside but so we're expanding we have a pretty substantial presence already in the nfl but in the other four three leagues yeah uh, baseball basketball and hockey we're in growth mode mm -hmm. so um all right we, well let's let's get the wild the timberwolves and the twins all all uh you know, getting on your, getting on your payroll and and uh, spreading the word for you. So, um, you know, with that, it's hrtactics.com. I will put that out there, hrtactics.com. That is your guys' landing page and your, your website. And, uh, again, appreciate it, man. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Well, that is going to do it for us here at Unrestricted. I sincerely want to thank Greg for coming on the show and being as candid and, uh, and as open as he possibly could. Obviously, he has to protect the privacy of a lot of companies and especially a lot of teams because a lot of these teams don't want to let other teams know that, hey, if we become successful and let's say that we we win the biggest game possible, well, they don't want everybody else stealing their people, you know, stealing their methodology. So obviously, we understand how competitive advantages work and they want to keep a lot of that stuff private. So he really had to dance around some of that stuff and didn't want to give away too much. But um, I want to thank him for the education. I mean, I, th I thought it was fascinating how much work goes into just building these these assessments on each individual player. And I'll imagine multiplying that by all the different teams and all the different leagues and all the different corporations. Uh, there's a lot going on at HR Tactics. So thanks, uh, Greg, so much. And if you are a company out there that maybe think that 
hey, maybe this is something that we need to to make our workforce even better. Uh, you can reach out to Greg at hrtactics.com. I also want to thank my sponsors. I want to thank Jack's Cafe once again for sponsoring this podcast and being an awesome, awesome partner. Please go to Jack's Cafe up in Northeast Minneapolis. If you want an old school historic steakhouse feel, well, Jack's Cafe has it. Whether it's uh, two people, four people, you want a party of 20, you want a party of 200, they have the room and the capability and the service to make it all work. And listen, everybody, they have the most kick-ass patio in the backyard that is the place to go for happy hours, especially in the Twin City summers when everybody just wants to be outside. It's bug-free, and you can stare, and you can watch the little babbling brook with the trout farm right in the backyard. Um, hey, pick out your trout that you're going to have for lunch. Go there for happy hour. They'll go there for dinner. Uh, hang out at Jack's Cafe. Remember, it's Jack's Cafe, J-A-X-C-A-F-E.com, where they're serving steaks, not trends. And lastly, I want to thank you guys as the fans. You guys are amazing fans. You guys have supported this podcast podcast from the very beginning and you're helping the podcast grow uh thank you for all your support thank you for all the feedback thank you for all the suggestions please keep those coming on benlieber.com or you can go to the apple podcast platform and leave a comment and please 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 leave a five-star rating so that's going to do it for us here at unrestricted thank you guys so much we'll see you on the next one see ya